This morning's scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants of David, bringing tribute. Then David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. As he went to restore his rule at the river, David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for a hundred chariots. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem. From Beda and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezer, David, King David took a very large amount of bronze. Then when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued from Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek and from spoils from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom. In all Edom he put garrisons and all the Edomites became servants to David and the Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorded. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the sons of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were chief ministers." This is the word of the Lord. You guys uh, keep your Bibles open to Second Samuel chapter 8. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I just had a surgery pretty recently on my foot. I can't stand a long time yet. So I'll tell you that every week <clears throat> until I'm standing up here. That'd be great. So last week I asked when I opened the sermon from 2 Samuel 7, what moves you? And I said something that moves me is hearing of a trip to Disney. Uh, that's one that moved me or when I was little, and it still would. If my wife said, let's go to Disney, I'd be all excited. And uh, a lot of you said, that's the same with me. Uh, and imagine one day you heard a promise from your folks, hey, we're going to Disney in a month. That's awesome. Promises are exciting. The words are often transforming. Preparations begin, mindset changes, inward excitement and joy stir within you. 
uh, you can hardly sleep as the day approaches to leave. You wake up the morning, the final morning, you're ready to go, you pack up the last things, like get your pillow, get your whatever, off to the car you go, and man, this is awesome. But many times the journey there becomes long and tiring. And sometimes it gets downright miserable. Like, ah, how much longer? You ever heard that? (laughs) Uh, Are we there yet? Will we ever get there? I'm tired. How much longer? (laughs) It's over and over and over. But you know, uh, if you don't travel there, you'll never get there. That's profound. You should write that down. The journey isn't easy. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's hard. If you go up a big mountain, snow and ice covered, just because you want to like use your new skis on the double black diamond, the journey isn't always easy, but it's necessary. You got to go a lot of miles before you get to Disney, at least if you're living here. In chapter 7, we've heard that the covenant-keeping God made this covenant with David, a covenant that was filled with such amazing things that it altered and transformed David completely. Changed his praises, his worship, changed his prayers. He was never the same. That was chapter 7. It was glorious to me and to a lot of you I know. And I knew chapter 8 was coming. And so, as is my pattern on Sunday night, I would always start reading the next text. Not that I hadn't read it before at all, but that's what I'm starting to get into. And I, and I read it Sunday night, and I'm like, oh, okay. Then Monday morning, I, I got up pretty early and spent like five hours at Starbucks that morning, and I read it and read it. And, and you know, I thought, this is the word of the Lord. Romans 5, 4 is true. The things that were written in earlier times were written for our encouragement. That the encouragement uh, through the scriptures, we might have hope. So everything that was written earlier was for our instruction that we might have hope through the encouragement and perseverance of the scriptures. That's the word of this, anyway. And I'm like, I believe that, that God wrote these things earlier that we could have hope, but this is like different, you know? I also believe um, 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, that every word is inspired by God, is profitable for correction, reproof, training, and doctrine, that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for everything. I believe that's true. I also believe it's true that God wants us to, to learn and hear the whole counsel of God. And so it's pretty easy when you're uh, pastoring and preaching to know what you're going to preach because what we're going to preach in this church is the next thing. And the next thing after first, second, uh, second Samuel 7 is what? Second Samuel 8. So I believe all those things, and yet I read it, and I'm like, man, it seems to be a lot, a big change, a drastic change from like chapters 5 through 7, and particularly a drastic change from chapter 7. I wanted to, to preach Second Samuel 7 again and maybe even 5 through 7. But you know we got to trust the Lord and trust his word and trust his ways. Um, And the more I read it Monday morning, the more glorious it became to me. It's like for the covenant promises to become reality, for the Lord to establish his kingdom, as David earnestly prayed, there had to be a journey to get us there. And 2 Samuel 7 is God's great promises of God, and they're so good and they're so true, but the more I read chapter 8, it hit me, And chapter 8 opens with these verses. The next slide is this. After this, or your version might say, now after this. So in chapter 7, God has covenanted with his people. He's made promises, magnificent, beautiful promises. Not only pushing them to look at the past graces, the current graces, but the future glorious graces that he, he promised. And he covenanted with his people through Abraham and David. And immediately after he covenanted, chapter 8, now after this. God starts making good on his promises immediately. And once I started thinking, man, this is a story of God making good on what he promised, everything changed. 
Now to understand that, let's go back to chapter 7, verse 10. We'll look at a little bit of what he promised his people. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. God promised a place for his people. This place that he promised was the same promise he made to Abraham in Genesis. Uh, we, we read about it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, many, many other texts. A land that they could come and dwell and commune with the Lord in peace forevermore. Let me give you one place that it talks about that, Deuteronomy 11:24. Every place on which the sole of your feet treads shall be yours. Your border will be from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the western sea. So God is saying, this is going to be your land, the promised land, where you're going to dwell with me in peace and at peace from all the enemies around you forevermore. Until David became king, that promise was not realized very much. At the end of chapter 7, verse 10, it goes on, and not only will God appoint to you a place, but he says, I will plant my people there. He's got this beautiful thing. I will, I will plant my people there. And when he's saying, I will plant my people there, he's like, I'm going to remove all that hinders them from growing and communing with me. He would make them dwell in the place without being disturbed or afflicted by their enemies anymore. A little side note, in chapter 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and it says that he puts it in the place that it was prepared for the Ark of the Covenant. What is that place? The place of the Ark of the Covenant was God to be with his people. David's prayers and petitions uh, radically and forever transformed him by the word that he heard from Nathan, last chapter. And how, when we hear God's word, should it transform us as well? His constant prayer we saw in the end of chapter 7 was, Lord, your covenant is so good. Your promises are so good. They're so magnificent that even the Lord looks back at all that he's done, and it's almost insignificant inside of what he's purposed and planned and uh, promised to do in the future. And, and David sees that, and he said, Lord, make good on your promises. Bring it to pass. Make it a reality. Those are words we hear David say in chapter 7 at the end. And 2 Samuel 8 is an accounting of God beginning to do just that, make it a reality. A beautiful text. And so let's not let chapter 8 set us back from glorying in the Lord and moving toward his promises. It's not the downer that it may seem to be when Henry first read it. Um, now you might say, well, I didn't catch all that. Why should it be a downer? Well, because it has all kinds of slaughter and death and destruction. And, and you know, David is like hamstringing horses. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. And so the problem with establishing God's kingdom of justice and righteousness is that there are other kingdoms that hinder it from being established. That's the problem. There are kingdoms that are the enemies of God and that are enemies of God's plan. Uh, there are many enemies they're on every direction, enemies to the south, north, the east, and the west. We're going to see that in the text. Here's a little outline as we consider 2 Samuel chapter 8. The first point is God gives the victory. We're going to see that in the first six verses and then in verses 13 and 14 with the Edomites. Second point is David dedicates the spoils or the treasures that he gets from the victory. That's verses 7 through 12. And there's going to be a summary of God bringing justice and righteousness through David. That's just verses 15 through 18, and we're not going to even get there. I'm going to save that little last thing for a transition to chapter 9 for next week. So uh, as we move along, and you're like, man, we're a long way, uh, we got a long way to go. And you're like, I'm tired. Just know that we're not going to hit that last section. So stick with me. So David gives victory. David dedicates the spoils. 
So let's start with David. Uh, God gives the victory, verses 1 through 6, 13 through 14. The defeat of every foe is necessary. The journey is necessary to defeat every foe. The enemies of God are enemies of his good purposes. If God's righteous kingdom is going to be established, the, kingdom, the kingdoms of this world that rise up against God have to be brought down by God. So in order for God's kingdom to be established, then the kingdoms of this world that rise up against God and his plan have to be brought down by God. So uh, it wasn't an option for David to rest when all the enemies were still hindering. And so we read in verse, chapter 7, verse 1, that David was at rest, and, but all of a sudden he's not at rest because the enemies are hindering again. So he didn't have an option. David had an obligation. He was the anointed Messiah, the Savior King, and so he had to go and battle these kingdoms that were against the Lord. Now we need to realize that in the conflicts that we read about today, these aren't wars and conflicts and battles over little things like small territorial or resource issues. It wasn't little squabbles. Uh, what was at issue was the opposition of all the forces of evil against the purposes of God. That's what's going on. This is major battle, major issues. If the kingship uh, that God had promised was to be established, the striking down of all the enemies was a must. Before we take a look at the summary of the enemies, and that's the first six verses, and then 13 and 14, the summary of the enemies that God takes down that hinder his kingdom. Uh, we're reminded in verse 6, and we're reminded in verse 14, twice, by the way, God uses that way, way to say it. You guys use it with your kids. You say it over and over and over, do this, do this, do this. Well, that's what God does to emphasize stuff. It's not always big and bold. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just repeated. Here it's repeated. Uh, the Lord, and I like a different translation than what we actually read. Instead of the Lord gave help, I like the translation uh, that says, and the Lord gave the victory to David wherever he went. So we're, we're reminded that the achievements of taking down all the hinders are not David's achievements. They're the Lord's achievements. Uh, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went, verses 6 and 14. There are enemies of God's purpose on every side. For David in his day, we're going to read that there, every direction the Philistines were here, and Zophah was here, and Hadadezer was this direction. But the beauty of that is we turn today, and I think you know this, we have enemies on every side, right? Enemies that would, that would keep us from following hard after the Lord and enemies that would tell us, ah, live for yourself. And, and the, the great news of this chapter is God sees and knows all our enemies. That's a beautiful thing of this thing. It, God sees the ones that are to the south and the north and the east and the west. He sees those. And not only does he see, see them, he desires and promises to defeat them all. And not only does he see and promise to defeat them all, he's the Lord of hosts who has all the resources at his bidding, and he's capable to do it. That's the beauty of the text. Chapter 8 is an amazing account and demonstration that God not only makes good promises, but he makes good on his promises on behalf of his people. After a very long introduction and a touching on the text, let me pray, and we'll keep going. Father, we thank you for another glorious chapter, a, a chapter that, that shows that you're willing, capable, desiring to take away all that hinders you and your people from growing and communing with Christ. Father, we thank you that you uh, desire and you're capable and you take away all that hinders your promises and your covenant for coming true for your people forever. Father, it's hard to realize and understand that in order for you to keep your promises and to establish your kingdom, that other kingdoms, all other kingdoms must fall. And yet there's good news all through this text that you destroy the enemies of your people 
But even as you do, you call the people from those enemy nations to yourself, many of them. And that's glorious. May we see that too. Father, we thank you that here we, we don't only uh, have uh, your covenant being made and your promises being made, but we have them being kept. May we glory in that and delight on you as we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So continuing then with God gives the victory, the enemies are named. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, all those other folks, a lot of folks, we'll see them. And it's good. I made a list. I'm like, why is it good that God names the enemies? And I came up with seven things. I'll give you two of them. And you can ask me for the other ones later. The first thing is this. God shows that they're real enemies. He knows that you have real enemies, named enemies. And he knows them and he sees them. And that means there's not going to ever be one that takes him by surprise or that takes us by surprise and rises up and unexpectedly wins the day. There's not going to be an enemy of God or his people that unexpectedly rises up and wins the day. That's a beautiful truth of this. The other thing is, is the reality of God keeping his promises. You know, sometimes you, you hear things like, well, I did this, name one. Or you did this against me, name one. And we say, God, what's your promises? Have you kept them? It's like the Philistines, remember what I did to them? And the Moabites and the Edomites? And, and what other ites are out there? Lots of them. And like, I've, I've taken care of all those. Those are, those are some, some, some of the things. It's important that the enemies were named. And interestingly, he names the direction that the enemy is in related to the Israelites. So the Philistines are this direction, the Moabites this direction, Edomites are this direction, all those kind of things. Now, uh, what he's doing all along the way is he's showing that he's keeping his promises. He's giving his, the people the exact land that he promised Abraham. He's anointing a place for my people Israel, and he is planting them that they may live in their own place in peace with him, communion with him, not disturbed again, nor will they ever be disturbed and afflicted in any way anymore. Man, beautiful thing. So verses 1 through 6 and verses 13 and 14 are a summary of all the nations that the Lord has given victory to David over. Now, um, if you study this really detailed, you, you, you need to know this. If you don't, you read it surfacely, it might not be a big deal. But if you study this, we need to know that this is a thematic uh, list. It's not a chronological list. In other words, the things that happen here are not in chronological order. It's the Lord taking all the times and all the people that he's defeated and bringing him into a list and saying, ah, look what I've done for you. I'm keeping the promises and the covenant that I've given you before. So the first one is the uh, Philistines, verse 1. We've encountered the Philistines a lot, uh, this great enemy of the Lord. And um, we've seen it throughout the book of Samuel. By the, by the way, the book of Samuel is first and second Samuel is the book of Samuel. We've seen it all along. How could you forget chapter 17 of, cha uh, chapter 17 of uh, first Samuel? What is that? David and Goliath. All right, so David and Goliath. Uh, Goliath, by the way, was a big, giant Philistine. So he's, in, you know, Philistine. And before the David and Goliath story, we, we read in earlier chapters, chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel, that the Philistines uh, destroyed or did battle with the uh, Israelites, and they took them down twice in a row. Bad, big, bad battles. And the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they slay the second, the second battle. They, they killed 30,000 Israelites. Uh, at the end of 1 Samuel, the Philistines kill Saul and three of his sons. They, and they, they have a great defeat uh, over the Israelites. But in 2 Samuel chapter 5, God reverses things. And there was another beautiful thing, that God reverses the things that happen in 1 Samuel, and, and he causes and gives the Philistines into the hands of the Israelites, not once, but twice. And they win two victories. 
And on the second victory, they beat the Philistines so badly that the Philistines run away and they leave their God, Dagon, back behind them. It's kind of the reverse in saying, okay, you stole the Ark of the Covenant, which, by the way, got back to Israel pretty quickly after nine months. And it, was, it was wreaking havoc in the land of Philistines, if you remember that. And yet now the, the, the Philistines run and leave their God. And in the very next chapter, David gathers 30,000 men, the exact number of men that was lost in the battle against the Philistines back in 1 Samuel. And he goes to recover the Ark of the Covenant in order to bring the glory of the Lord back into the city of the Lord, Jerusalem. Okay, the next one is the Moabites. Oh, by the way, I didn't say this, but it says in the text, the Philistines, um, they're from the west, by the way. And then the Moabites, they're from the east. So he defeated the Moabites, and they're from the east. And this is a really tough one, by the way. When I read this at first, I'm like, that is awful. It says that he defeated Moab and measured them with a line. Like, do you measure up? And then making them lie down on the ground, and he measured two lines out, and he put them to death, and he measured one line, full line, to keep them alive. And the Moabites became servants to God, bringing tribute. So the Moabites... um, Moab was the, the son of Lot, who was the uh, nephew of, of uh, Abraham. The Moabites were a nation that came from Lot, therefore, and they, there was no love lost between them and the Israelites. They were fighting bad news all along. And the def- defeat described here is has very severe. And John Calvin, I, w- I was reading his commentary on this, and I've, I've got the quote up on the screen. It says, the, the stringency which David exercised against the Moabites ought not to be considered cruelty, but to be considered the just judgment of God, since they, the Moabites, had abused his long patience and had mocked him. They mocked him by mocking and abusing God's people over and again. Now, again, we should be thankful that God takes down every nation and everything that rises up against him in his covenant promises. Another important truth here, and I don't want us to miss this, it's all through this text and all through the scriptures. When the Lord takes down a nation, he also brings in some people from that nation to himself. A beautiful truth. So he strikes down in order to save his people, and he strikes down and warns in order to save some people from the nations that he strikes down. Verse 2 ends this way. And the Moabites became servants to, to David, bringing tribute. Not all of them. How do we know that? Because God put some of them to death. But some of them started serving David and the kingdom of God, bringing tribute. Man, grace extended and the covenant extended to the nations. Beautiful. And you might know of another story of a, of a Moabitess woman. You know about that story? She has a book of the Bible named after her. Her name is Ruth. So Ruth is a Moabitess woman. She was taken in. Even though the slaughter was great, it wasn't full. And... Um, Naomi, her mother-in-law, loses her husband and loses two of her sons, one of which was Ruth's husband. And Ruth thought, well, or Naomi thought, well, Ruth is going to go back to her hometown, Moab, instead of coming back with me. And yet Ruth says, no, I'm sticking with you. Your, Your people are my people. Your God's my God, that kind of thing. And if you know something about Ruth, um, she was David's great-great-grandmother. So that means she was in the genealogy of Jesus, this Moabitess. God, God extends grace to enemies. Beautiful truth. Isaiah 60, verse 12. We're still on the same theme of extending grace to the enemy. 
For the, and, and by the way, if you, I would urge you guys to go and read Isaiah 60, the, the whole chapter of which flows right into everything 2 Samuel 8. But we're not going to read it all today. I had it here, and I'm like, that's too many words. So Isaiah 60, verse 12 says, For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish. And the nations will be utterly destroyed. Just let that sink in. For the nations and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will utterly will be utterly destroyed. God is so very gracious to spare men and the nations that must be taken down to fulfill his covenant promises, to make them a reality. What grace for all those who were spared in Moab. I don't simply mean that they were spared that moment of being put to death. What I mean is they were taken, many of them, and they were spared for eternity by being placed under God's covenant promises and established by him. That's glorious. Subduing enemies and then bringing many of those enemies in to his kingdom. The next one, Zobah, to the far north, way up there, verses three and four. Then David defeated Hadad-Ezer, a son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he then restored his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David uh, hamstringed the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. This is really interesting. Hadad-Ezer, his name means, my gods will help me. It's kind of ironic if you go back and read verses 3 and 4, because his gods clearly did not help him. Uh, there is only one God, the living and true God. David then, you will notice, he hamstrings. By the way, what does hamstring mean? He cripples. He cripples horses. He cripples how many of them? 1,700 minus enough to you know, be used in 100 chariots. I don't know why that's true. I don't know why that's there. Why did he put that in there? I don't know, because David said in Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. They will bow down, but I will stand upright. I don't know. Did he need those hundred chariots to win the day? No. But David is also one that he took a slingshot and five stones. He only used one. And he used the slingshot and a stone, and he, he took down Goliath, Right? But then he didn't say, well, that was a slingshot and stone that took Goliath down. It was God gave him the victory. So either way, I don't know why he saves enough horses that he didn't hamstring for 100 chariots. But we do know this, that his God really did help him. And God said, God is the one who gave them into my hands. Uh, the next one is the people of Damascus. They're the near north. So the far north and the near north. Let me read that in verses 5 and 6. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Hmm. Um, and then at the end it says, and the Arameans became servants, the ones who weren't killed, to David bringing tribute. Do you see that again? Even another enemy nation. He kills some of them, taking them down, and yet some of them come to give him tribute and honor the Lord. And David helped David wherever he went, or David gave the victory wherever he went. So headed Ezra's help from his gods failed, and now these people from Damascus come to help uh, Hadad Ezer, and they fell too, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The last um, verses 13 and 14 is uh, in the summary of the nations he defeated was the Edomites, or the Edomites, rather. And they're from the south, so we have all the directions there. And the Edomites were descendants of Jacob's brother. Jacob's brother was Esau. 
So they're descendants of um, Esau. Now, I, I want us to notice that he says that we have the, the enemies to the south, to the east, that way, to the north, and to the west. All the enemies of God, and God is good and capable. And uh, he, he gives the land that he's promised by taking down from every direction God's enemies and the people's enemies. David's kingdom is not the perfect kingdom yet, and it won't be under the rule of David. We're going to see over and over and over a lot more of that. Under the rule of David, David wasn't perfect king. And really from chapters 9 to the end of 2 Samuel, we're going to, just, it's going to, be, we're going to be bombarded with the sin of David. And I was thinking, um, <clears throat> Henry and Jack, <clears throat> our other intern from RUF last year, they were at a um, class this week. And they were going through how many books of the Bible? Seven books of the Bible in five days. And so it was just this big blast of stuff. And what happens is the, the guy spends a good bit of time on 1 Samuel. I mean, a good bit of time, meaning like a few hours, a couple hours. And then 2 Samuel until he got to chapter 8. And then in chapters 9 to the end, Henry was like, let's go. I get to hear before John preaches it. And he said, and then it's a bunch of, just a bunch of David's sin. And I'm like, okay, so I'm not going to have to summarize that. We're not going to summarize that. Because if it's there that many chapters, God wants us to hear it that many times. So I'll just prep you in advance for that. So David's kingdom is not the perfect kingdom yet, not under David. We're going to see that more. But the pattern of God's kingdom has been established already. The pattern of his kingdom is that there has to be conflict before there's conquest and triumph. There's al there always has to be conflict before there's conquest and, and triumph. Why? Because there's enemies that hinder the establishing of God's kingdom. While we're here, living in Anderson as outpost of where we're from, we're living here as outposts of the kingdom of God, there's going to be conflict before there's full and final triumph for us. And, and yet we have God's covenant promises to keep us, to transform us, and to hold us. The, the Old Testament stories and the New Testament stories have the same pattern. Because of the fall of man into sin, men and nations don't long for the Lord, don't long for his friendship, don't long for his reign like we should, but we live in resistance to him. Some live more strongly in resistance to the Lord than others live, but we all live in resistance to the Lord. Psalm 2 talks about that. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord. And he says, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords. We want to cast away the Lord's reigning over us. We want to live for ourselves. The cross should be enough for us to know and understand that in order to defeat the darkness of the kingdom of, of, of all the enemies, there's going to be bloodshed, there's going to be battles, and ultimately the defeat of the enemy, the greatest enemies, sin and death, require the greatest sacrifice, and that's the sacrifice of Christ. In the summary of David's, of David's victory over the enemies, is there's this anticipation of the, of the victory of Jesus over all our enemies and his enemies. And in John chapter 12, when Jesus is going to the cross, anticipating Calvary. He says this, he says, now the ruler of this world is cast out. And then after he says that, Jesus proceeds to the cross, he proceeds to the tomb, and he proceeds to be risen again. And the, the words of a hymn writer say this, from victory unto victory, his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. That's what's happening in chapter eight. God is keeping his promises and he's taking down every enemy from the south and north and east and west, all of them. 
Every foe is vanquished till Christ is Lord indeed, and we rest in the place that he's made for us, and he plants us there that we can enjoy peace and communion with him. That's the first point. We only have one more. God gives the victory, and it's glorious. Uh, the second point is this. David dedicates the spoils, verses 7 through 12. Verses 7 through 12 is a, is a catalog or a list of all the spoils or the, or the wealth or the treasure that David collects from all the enemies. Uh, and, what, and he also tells what he does with it. So the first one is this. This is a little outline, verses 7 and 8. Do I have that? Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, the spoil of Hadazar. So that was the one that took up the most um, in, in the first list was the Zo- Zoah and the king had it Ezer. So he starts with that one, and he tells us about the spoils from there. And then uh, the second one is um, the submission of and homage from Toy, another king. And then the last one is the, the consecration of the spoils and wealth from all the nations. So from the spoil and the treasure from one place, then from another place, and then all the places, and then it tells us what God's going to do with it. Verses 7 and 8. David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadad Ezer, and brought them to Jerusalem. From Beda and from Berotha, cities of Hadad Ezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. David amasses treasures. And he amasses treasures from Hadad Ezer, the one whose God is supposed to help him. God's supposed to help him. God, uh, he takes shields from their officers, piles and piles of bronze from their cities. Uh, that was a spoil from Hadad Ezer. And now we're going to go to the Toy Story. Verses 9 and 10. Now when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadad Ezer, Toy sent Jerom, his son, to the king David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadad Ezer and defeated him, for Hadad Ezer had been at war with Toy. And Jerom uh, brought with him articles of gold, or silver and gold and bronze. So to the treasures of Hadad Ezer, David adds the articles of silver and gold and bronze from Toy, the king of Hammon, by the way of his son Jerem. And we're going to come back to that detail. Sorry for cutting off. My battery might be dying. I think. I don't know. Anyway, we'll see. Um, and so to all these, all these spoils and wealth, he adds all this from all, all the gold in the nation, uh, all the gold and silver from the nations, verses 11 and 12. And uh, he dedicated it to the Lord. So let's go through that a little bit. So, but all the spoils, do you know in 1 Samuel, God tells um, King Saul one place, don't take the spoils. Like, you're going to get all this wealth and spoils, don't take it for yourself. And you're like, well, what's David doing with all these spoils? Did, why did he take them? Um, maybe he took them, you know, he had this house of cedar, right? This really great house, man cave in it, all that stuff. Maybe he was taking all this stuff to like deck that out, make it really cool. Or, or maybe he wanted the people to, to make another song up about him. You know, they made a song up in 1 Samuel. It's like, Saul has slain his thousands, David has ten thousands. Maybe he wanted a song like, David has slain his 22,000 Aramedes and 18,000. Maybe that, but no, that's not the truth. It's no way. God, God had transformed David. And it says that David dedicated all the spoils to the Lord. He didn't take it for himself. He dedicated it to, to the Lord. All the stuff. All the spoils of war, all the evidences that God was with him, all the evidences that God gave him the victory, David took all those things and he dedicated it to the Lord. Let me give you two things that help us understand this a little better. First Kings 7:51. If you remember uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, right at the first, David had this great plan. Man, God has given me this great house. 
this great victory. I'm going to build him a house. God says, no, you're not. You're going to build me a house. That's not my plan. But David's son Solomon did build the house, right? The temple. God was not ever contained in the temple, but he built a temple. And this is uh, 751, 1 Kings. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, the silver and the gold. And so here we have, you know, David actually provides silver and gold that go into the temple, showing that God is the one who gives us the victory. Haggai 2, verses 7 through 9. Uh, this is, have any of you guys seen the commercial where the couple, or that younger couple is shaking the old folks couple and change falls out of their pockets into the couch and then they go and they get the, have anybody seen that? It's kind of, I know it's like, what? Anyway, it reminds me of that. I'll show it to you later. Uh, and it, it says this, God says, I will shake all the nations. It's like he holds somebody upside down and has pockets full of money and he shakes them. And he's like, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations and I will fill this house with glory, meaning his house, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory, uh, says the Lord of hosts. And, I, and in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So all the glory and all the treasure and all the wealth, all the silver and the gold, the bronze, all things are his. He made them all. And he says in this text, broadly, that in this covenant, I'm going to share all those things with my people. And I'm going to share them and plant them and, and put them in a place, their place, where they're going to be commune with me and be at rest with me. In uh, verse 60 again, now chapter 60 of Isaiah again, he says, and I, I don't have the verses here, but at the very first of that, he says, kings will lead the processional, foreigners will serve you, Kings, foreign kings will build your walls and they will minister to you. Basically, all the wealth of all the nations are the Lord's. Uh, the kings, the people, all of that. Um, now, a note to those who are conquered. Um, toy is different than Hadah, Ezer, and Moab and the Philistines. God conquers Moab, the Philistines, and Hadah, Ezer. He just kind of takes a lot of them down. But toy's a little bit different. The, the gifts that came from toy, the bronze and silver and gold that came from toy, they, they came willingly, right? It says that they saw the Lord work, and then the king, uh, toy, sent his son, Jerem, to David. And he's, uh, basically, I think that, here's Jerem. He's like, how are you, King David? Man, you, that was awesome, all the stuff that you did. You're great. We want to give you stuff, right? I think he was like, hey, we're buttering you up. We want to be on your side. Um, kind of long live the king, I think. And I think that the nation there in Toy what, kind of tells us a little bit of, of, of Psalm, picture Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, and I'm not, we're not going to go there and read it, we've read it a couple times over the last few weeks, uh, Psalm 2 challenges the kings and rulers of all the nations to take warning. And it, it says, you kings and rulers of the earth, you who stand in opposition to the mighty God, and then it gives us exhortation at the end of chapter 2. It says, kiss the son, that he not become angry with you and you perish in your way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. So here's this great warning that's also an invitation to all the kings and all those who oppose him, to all who resist him. It's like you who stand in opposition to him and you and I stand in opposition to him until he brings us in. And even after that, we stand in opposition to him. But the warning is an invitation. It's like an, instead of opposing him, would you kiss the sun? 
Would you bow down before him, the king? Would you bring your crowns and lay them at his feet? It's better that you do that than you be crushed. The Edomites and the Moabites and the Philistines and the people of Damascus were crushed. But Toy and his folks came to acknowledge the Lord willingly and they bowed down. Instead of continuing to resist the Lord by living our, our own lives and for ourselves, may we also heed this warning, the warning to resist him, the warning to resist his kindness and his grace. May we hear his covenant promises. May we see his covenant faithfulness a beginning right after he makes the covenant promises. And may we too today kiss the sun instead of resisting him. Has Christ not won a great victory for you and I over sin and death and shame and guilt, hell? Then bring all the spoils of victory, your gifts and your abilities, your capacities, your capabilities, your usefulness into the service of the king. There's a lot of stuff today, too much to summarize. I think it's a good place to stop. We're going to pick up that last section before we move on to the next big transition into chapters 9 and on next week. So let me pray, and then we'll move to the table. Father, we thank you for your word. There's lots of truths that we heard here. You're a God who doesn't simply make good covenants, but you make good on all your covenants. Father, we thank you that you take down every enemy opposed to your establishing your kingdom. Every enemy of yours is an enemy of your people's. Father, I, I thank you for doing that, and yet we thank you that even in the midst of some severe destruction. You're a God of grace and glory. And we've seen pictures here, at least three of them right in this text, that even though you take down enemy nations, there's many in the enemy nations that you draw to yourself and save, not simply from the day, but for eternity. Father, we thank you that you look on your people with grace, that you've made good promises to, to appoint for us a land, a place that we could be planted to commune with you, to serve you, to know you, to dwell with you in peace. Father, as we move to the table, we pray that that would be a means of grace to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.